This is episode number 92, the founder and president of Results Advisory and the host of Inside the Lion's Den podcast, Arye Scheinbein. Welcome to the Path to Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Wes Barefoot, where it's my mission to help aspiring entrepreneurs and existing business owners take control of their lives and create freedom for themselves through business ownership. Each episode, I'll be exploring the strategies and tactics of other successful entrepreneurs that have created freedom in their own lives while sharing what I'm learning along my own path to freedom. I'm glad you're here. Let's drop in. Before we drop into the episode, a quick message from our sponsor, 919 Marketing. I've worked with 919 Marketing for years and there's no one I trust more with my marketing needs in any of our businesses. I've worked with them in our franchise businesses, in my consulting business. I've worked with them on the franchisor side and I love working with 919 because they take the time to listen. They take the time to understand what it is I'm looking to accomplish through my marketing, who I'm trying to reach, and then they help me put a plan together to do just that. I've worked with tons of marketing companies over the years, and too often, it's a one-size-fits-all approach, but not with 919 Marketing. In addition to that, they've developed some amazing technology called 919 Insights, franchising's first and only AI-powered analytics platform. With 919 Insights in place, 919 Marketing can identify the exact topics that matter to your franchise candidates and provide the specific roadmap to help your brand become the highest ranking and most trusted resource when they're searching for answers. So if you're ready to start getting better results from your marketing, and if you want a free demo of 919 Insights, reach out to Graham Chapman at 919-459-8157 or send them an email at gchapman at 919marketing.com to schedule your free demo today. So whether you're a franchisor, a franchisee, or just getting started in your first franchise business, make sure to check out 919 Marketing and tell them West Barefoot sent you. Now, let's drop into the episode. Welcome and thanks for dropping in to another episode of the Path to Freedom podcast. My guest today is Arye Scheinbein. Arye and I connected a while back and it's been very interesting getting to know him and learning a little bit about his story. Um, reason for joining me on the podcast, he has a firm results advisory where he advises a lot of entrepreneurs and, and really anyone that's just looking to uh, build wealth through non-traditional means. Um, Arye's background is in investment banking, venture capital. He's worked for hedge funds. He's, over the course of his career, really honed his skill set when it comes to analyzing investment opportunities, understanding you know, what a business's upside is, understanding risk. And he's leveraged all of that experience to now start his own consulting firm where he's helping other people identify, evaluate, analyze investment opportunities, and you know ultimately 
he acts as a wealth architect for his clients. Arya has got a very interesting story. Uh, he talks in this episode about how as a young um, married guy just had his first kid, you know, had a great corporate career going, but he had this kind of entrepreneurial itch. So he started, you know, what at the time was a side hustle, started learning e-commerce, started learning how to sell on platforms like Amazon, how he went on to build that into a significant business, still manages that business today, um, but also still has a very successful corporate career. So Arya is a great example of someone that has been able to blaze his own entrepreneurial trail without necessarily having to sacrifice a career that he's worked hard for and still very much enjoys. So a lot of great information here from REA. Fascinating story, fascinating conversation. Got a lot of links uh, that, that we'll put in the show notes for additional resources, additional information to uh, consume from REA and definitely check out his podcast inside the lion's den with that. Let's go ahead and drop in with REA Shinebine. Hey, path to freedom listeners. Thanks so much for dropping into another episode. Very excited today to introduce you to REA Shinebine. REA is the founder of results advisory solutions and uh, has a lot of good information that he's going to share with us today, uh, all of which I know will resonate in a big way with each and every one of you listening. So, uh, Arye, thanks so much for joining me here on the Path to Freedom podcast. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks, Wes. So, for the audience listening in, probably not familiar with you yet, give us kind of a, a quick introduction, who you are, you know, what your firm specializes in, uh, and then from there, I'd love to, you know, hear a little bit of the story of how you got to where you are today. Sure. So, um, yeah, uh, results advisory really, we focus on a couple of things, but the biggest, you know, thing that we really focus on is we help business owners, entrepreneurs, people who tend to either work for themselves or have a, a significant uh, income coming from a side hustle or a primary, you know, business that they're very focused on making that business go and work and, and whether it's a mission or whatever it is. Um, but at the same time, they're trying to grow wealth for themselves. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to help them understand how they can do it in as little time, so to speak, possible. I, yeah. I don't like to play the passive income card because nothing is truly passive, but right. understanding that like, if your net worth is very tied up in one asset, i.e. your business, um, you need to be able to have your actual net worth be growing without you focusing on it while you're still maintaining that business. So that's really what, what I kind of at the core results advisory really does. Um, the way I kind of got here, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely a windy road, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that's how a lot of people end up in their different places. Right. So no doubt, no doubt. And that's why um, I love having my guests kind of share a little bit of, I call it the coming up story, right? Because I think people listening to someone like you, that's a, that's an expert on, you know, building wealth, maybe imagines, well, Arya kind of had it all figured out when he got started or Arya knows something that, that I don't know. And, and that's probably true now, but not necessarily true in the beginning when you were just getting started. So, so anyways, um, yeah, I, I imagine it's a winding path and, and would love to hear more about, you know, how it's played out for you. Yeah, sure. So um, I, I guess 
if, if I go back to when I was a kid, I was really a lot more of an entrepreneur than I really gave, knew and gave myself right. credit for. Um, but I didn't take that and said, okay, I'm going to do, you know, the entrepreneurial thing. Um, probably when I was graduating high school, um, it wasn't even like a thing to be, the entrepreneur was not a, a normalized word, right? right. Like it was, yeah. oh, you want to work for yourself? Like that would be some, like some crazy idea, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I went the, the traditional path, went to college, got a degree in finance, and then said, I want to get the best job in finance, mm -hmm. which was go work for the investment banks. Yep. And so I went and graduated with good degree, with a good grades, good degree. Um, and the truth was in high school, I wasn't like some all-star student. I, I okay. got good grades, but it was, I kind of did the minimum necessary to get the most, you know, the, the, the effort reward, uh, maximum balance, right? Yeah. Like minimal, minimal effort to kind of get that grade that I'm like, I'm going to stay out of trouble and, uh, everyone will be off my back, so to speak. Understood. Yeah. But when I got to college and I said, I want to get this high profile, high finance job, I recognized that like, this was now where I was going to focus. Yep. And for the years in college, it became not only do I need to get a good grade, but I need to network. And what do I need to do to get this job? Because it's achievable. I'm not like worried that I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm not coming out of Harvard. So I don't have all these benef added benefits, but right. I know that people who don't go to Harvard can get these jobs and work at, you know, where I ended up, you know, the JP Morgans, the Goldman Sachs's of the world. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll feel fine with that. Yep. And so that was what I did. And, and so I got the job went to investment banking. And when I got there, I realized right away, like, huh, what's next? Like, I, I was kind of like focused on that next goal. And I shouldn't have been probably, I should have been focused on like, let me build the skills that they're teaching me. And I did take the skills and I learned the skills, but I wasn't focused on them. I was focused on like, okay, what do I do from here? And what do sure. I do from here? Right. Um, and so I went through a career and, and to this day, I still have my career. Um, and that is, um, I went into, you know, from investment banking, I went to a small private equity firm where we did okay. also venture capital. Then I, I went back to the investment banks for a number of years and I did what we call um, equity research where I wrote the reports on stocks and, and companies. And so all along the way, like I'm learning all the things finance and all mm -hmm. the things investing and rec making recommendations and giving opinions on things. Um, and there was a, a number of years I did credit analysis on, on the underlying companies. Okay. So like businesses top to bottom, like I was totally there. Yeah. And so I ended up then working for about six years or so at, um, a little more, um, at a hedge fund where we okay. did both public investing, meaning investing in stocks and bonds and companies right. that are public and then private companies as well, like private equity and, and other things. And, you know, from there, I went to another fund, another bigger fund, many billions of billions, billions of dollars. And um, to this day, I still have that corporate um, role. I'm actually, I'm, I work at a, um, I have a, another job, like a full-time job, right, where um, I am a consultant for large private equity firms, hedge funds. And my job is to value businesses. So they say, okay, we're going to, we either bought, bought this business, we're investing in this business, or we already did it. We're going, thinking about whatever it is. Tell us what you think this business is worth. Tell us what this investment is worth. Like they may not own the whole thing. Mm -hmm. They may own a right. piece. So, Hey, what is this worth? So you obviously have to understand markets. You have to understand businesses. You have to understand valuation. But if I kind of go back in the storyline, when I first got that job and I was like, okay, what next, what next? I got married pretty young 
And um, so I would come home from this job and we, we were expecting our first kid pretty early on in the marriage, like, you know, within that, that year. Mm-hmm. And when my wife was, when we, when we got married, she was pregnant, she was exhausted. Yeah. And <laughs> so she would go to bed really early. And so here I am this, you know, 20 some odd year old kid with a good paying job, uh, married. So I'm not like going to go out and like go clubbing or whatever. Right. right? Yeah. And I'm like, so what, <laughs> what am I going to do at night? And so I hopped online and I basically started an online e-commerce business. Now you're like, oh, how the heck that happened? Long story short, I when I was a kid, one of my uh, entrepreneurial things was I was really into sports cards and I used to like ah. kind of arbitrage it, it because back then before the internet, like you had a price guide that would come out once a month. Yep. Oh, so there's yeah. this, this I remember time period. Well. Yeah, right. So so there's this time period though that like the price is static. Mm-hmm. And a player could be doing really, really well. But until that next guide comes out, it's not going to reflect that. That's right. right. And so you go into a store and they sell things at, at book value, right? They say, oh, this is what the guide says. We sell it at book value. And yeah. you, what, is the, what does the store buy it for? They buy it at half book, right? Like that, that was sure. the model. Yeah. So let's say you have a player. It's a $5 card and he is on fire. And it's a rookie, right? Like unexpectedly, no one. Yeah, came out of nowhere. Right. And so that card is going to go from $5 to maybe $10. Yeah. But in that period that he's performing well and the next guide is not out, you're not going to go into the store and find it at seven or eight dollars because now they're speculating, right? Mm-hmm. And they're they're, you know, their customers are gonna be like, oh, you're overcharging, right? Like they run the risk of like disfranchising, you know, disenchanting their customers because they're speculatively making a guess on where things are going. Yeah. But as a, a consumer, you can make that bet, right? Mm-hmm. So I, and I don't have to buy it from the store. I can buy it from my friends and be like, oh, you know, like, listen, cards, five bucks. The store will pay you 250, half book. I'll give you three bucks. I'll give you four bucks, whatever yeah. it is, right? Yeah, yeah. Or I trade them other value. And ultimately, I have a very strong sense that that card is going to go to eight, nine, ten dollars. And sure yeah. enough, that's what would happen. And then I'd either assess: should I flip it here, like sell it into the strength, or should I maintain it? And so that was like a lot that went on in like you know the the twelve through seventeen year old kind of age. Yeah. And so when I went online, I found that there was a again a gap in the market. Um, where stores were charging X for the the boxes of cards and eBay was charging half of X and Yahoo Auctions was charging somewhere in between the two. Mm-hmm. And so I basically started buying on eBay, selling on Yahoo Auctions or selling locally and basically taking that that spread, that arbitrage of like, okay, I could buy uh, hypothetically, the box was $100 local. And on eBay, I could pick it up for 50. I'd sell it either for 75, 80 on Yahoo, or mm-hmm. I would sell it locally for 90, 95, undercut yeah. the local market. Yeah. And then I started to kind of grow that at scale because I was like, well, this, this is this one-off thing. This is not working. So I'd buy wholesale, I'd buy the case. And, and I started to grow this all while having a full-time job. But sure. Because I had time at night. Doing it at night, yeah. Yeah. And so I got into e-commerce way before, like it was like really a, a thing. Yeah. I was going to um, ask, is this kind of pre Amazon before, you know, the Amazon sellers really got, yeah, got big. So, so, so this was, this started in like Oh one to Oh four. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. I actually was selling Amazon back then I could sell DVDs, books and DVDs. It was the only thing you could sell on right. Amazon as a third party. Yep. And so I used to actually sell, um, 
Disney DVDs. So at Disney, the way it used to work was you they would um, they would take something out of the vault, quote unquote, yeah. meaning there was only one title that was available for sale during this 90 day or 30 day window, right? So like Beauty and the Beast would come out or Snow White yep. or whatever it was, right? And so the first couple of times I didn't really pay it. I didn't understand. I wasn't paying attention. It wasn't my focus. I was more on the cards. Sure. And I'd go into a store and, you know, then we, we were starting to have kids, right? And so like I'd see Snow White, I'd be like, oh, and, and I noticed there was only one copy in the entire Barnes and Noble. And I'm like, how odd. Yeah. And so then I'd go home that night and I'd like, look, and I'd see that if I want to buy it on Amazon, that's no white. Let's say in Barnes and Noble, it was 20 bucks mm -hmm. and they weren't necessarily selling it on their website anymore, but it was like a random one copy in the store. And then I found on, on Amazon, it wasn't sold by Amazon, but it was sold by a third party yeah. and it was like 30 or $40. I'm like, Oh, and so I picked up on that started as the windows would open. I would start to buy, you know, the first time I bought like 10 or 20 copies of something. Yeah. And it would like, I'd be able to sell it for double. I was like, okay, the next time I bought, let's say 50 copies of, of whatever came out. So I started getting into that, but this was pre FBA. Fulfillment what I was going to say is you were probably yeah. having to ship everything yourself. Yes. Yeah. Everything. And same with eBay, all the stuff yeah. was being shipped myself. So I had moved out of cards at some, at a certain point into fishing and hunting gear. Um, okay. Not because I do either one of those things, but more because I found that those products were selling. Is your market, like, market research skills yes. that you were learning in your corporate yeah. job. Correct. And yeah. so I'm like, okay, this is selling. Let's just sell it. Yep. And I found the suppliers and, and that's what I would just do. And so the, the DVDs were just like an extension of that, like opportunistically. Um, and then really there was a point somewhere around, I would say like 06, 07, that I'm like, you know what, this is, this is starting to be a hassle to ship this stuff. Yep. This is like the most annoying thing ever. Takes up space. Yeah. Takes up time, packaging yeah. it, shipping it. All yeah, those. For sure. Exactly. And so I tried like hiring people, but it's like as an absentee boss, it's not so <laughs> good. Yeah. Um, and so like I learned some, you know, hard lessons, lost some money here and there, but not significant. But I kind of iced the business for a little bit. But during that time period, I learned a lot about email marketing, mm. customer understanding the avatar, who's buying, why are they buying, how do I get in touch with them, how do I have them buy again, lifetime value of a customer, yeah. average order, all these things, because I'm like, the economics have to work, and I need to understand how I can get us there. That was when I started meeting like a lot of online entrepreneurs and internet marketing kind of things. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, like I have my job. I don't, I don't need to do all these things. In 2011, though, um, so by by 2007 to 2010, Amazon started opening up the platform in more meaningful ways that you could sell other products, right? Yep. And so I started selling other products, and it was it was kind of interesting. But again, you're still dealing with the shipping. Mm -hmm. um, but I was playing much more of like the the holiday season, right? Like I would mm -hmm. I'd kind of load up on hot toys and things of that nature. Yeah. By 2011, they opened up their program FBA, right? Fulfillment yeah. by Amazon. And it was a complete game changer because what it did is it says, you find product, we'll handle the rest, yeah. right? We'll take yeah. a chunk of your money, but you won't have to think about a thing. Hands off. Yeah. So I'm like, this sounds really interesting. Yeah. And so I remember it had to be, I think it was the summer of 2012, somewhere around then. Um, my, <laughs> my kids were... <laughs> One, my eldest kid was going to sleepaway camp at this point. Okay. And it was, she was young, but she was going to sleepaway camp. And my wife uh, says she's going to take a job in the sleepaway camp. 
Ah. So she's going to work as a, a fitness instructor in camp. And that meant that all the kids get to go to the day camp there. And my old, you know, everyone's up in this, you know, in the Poconos for the summer. So yeah, you've got Jersey. some time during the day, it sounds like. Correct. Yeah. So I would go, I'd go to my job during the day. I'd come home. Nobody be home, right? And then on, let's say, Thursday night or Friday, I'd head up for the weekend and I'd come back, let's say, Monday. So what's what's a guy again to do, right? Like, so I started just buying, like I would shop one night, ship the next, I'd probably shop for a couple nights, ship it all out to Amazon's warehouses. And I remember there was one, one off day my wife had um, and she comes home, probably like, we're, we're probably like five weeks into the summer. And now I'm like neck deep in this. My yeah, living room got stuff looks, everywhere. Yeah, my <laughs> living room looks like a warehouse. She comes home and she's like, "What on earth is going on here?" I'm like, "I found a hobby." Like, yeah. you know, like <laughs> and it it actually makes money, so it's it's a right. good hobby in that way. Yeah. So uh, it was an interesting kind of transition. Uh, and she's like, "Listen, we come home in three weeks." This all better be gone. <laughs> Get it all out of here, all right. sold. So you were doing FBA early, like as soon as they rolled it out, but you were, it sounds like at least in this point in time, you were physically going shopping, yes. buying product, bringing yes. it home, shipping it out. Yes. Not, you know, buying stuff from China, having it shipped directly. Correct. Okay. So this is, this is early days. Um, yeah. what, what now people would call retail arbitrage. Yeah. Right? Like I walk yeah. into a Walmart, buy stuff, ship it out, right? Now they've got the apps where you can yes. just scan it. Scan it tells it. you what it would sell for, what totally. your net would be. It's, yeah. Yeah. A lot so, easier now. So back then there were a few apps and they were clunky. I bet. And, and like, I remember in like 2009, 10, 11, I can't remember when it started, but FBA, when, when Fulfillment by Amazon started, it was books only. Yeah. And there were book scanners. And it was this whole thing. People would go to these library sales and it, it was like, a, and for some of them didn't even connect to the internet to get the database. You actually have to download the database onto your phone oh, wow. or onto the scanner. And so if you didn't have the most up-to-date database, it, it was like clunky as hell. Yeah. I, I remember before any of the scanning apps, I would go to a store and I would literally like, and this is like, think about it. Like iPhone one came out, what, 2007, 2009. Yeah, I'm trying seven, to remember somewhere in that. Seven, I think. Yeah. So I remember I would like either take pictures or write down UPC codes. Wow. And then I'd come home and like you know, type it in and be like, oh, can you hold this for me for a couple hours? I'll be, I swear I'm coming back. <laughs> and, and it was, it was a very interesting early days, but then um, within, within a short period of time, I'm like, okay, I can't scale like this. This is a lot of fun. Um, and my kids love going to the stores. Like the truth oh, was, is having little kids, they would tell me, they'd be like, that toy is going to rock this, yep. this holiday. And I'm like, how do you know? And they're like, it just, it, I'm telling you. And like nine out of 10 times, they were right. They were right. I believe yeah. it. Yeah, I believe that for sure. And so uh, ultimately, you know, I moved to online arbitrage, meaning like buy it online yep. and then ship it. Um, started a first shipping it to me. Then I, then I got a third party warehouse that would, they'd prep it, they'd ship it to Amazon. But then eventually I moved into wholesale. 
and um, wholesale, I was just buying from the manufacturers or the product owner and say, hey, let me handle your Amazon channel. Let me be the exclusive. Let me show you how much I can grow your sales. And I'll just buy it like as if you were selling it to Target or Walmart. I'll be your buyer and I'll be I'll represent you you know, with map and whatever, you know, map is like, you know, minimum advertised price. Mm -hmm. So like, I yep. won't come down, I won't mess you over all these kinds of things. And, and then I started to really grow the business that way. Eventually we got into, um, you know, more private labeling things, mm -hmm. which is like the whole China model. Yep. I was never a fan of buying from China simply. This was, I think a control issue, but if I didn't have boots on the ground somewhere, it felt very weird to trust the quality to, yeah. to do these things. And like, I don't love traveling to places where I am definitively a foreigner. Yeah. From the perspective of, oh, you're not, your native tongue is not our native tongue. I can totally mess you over and you have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Right? Like, you don't really know the rules and regulations here. I can tell you something's a rule and it's really not, you know? Yeah. Like, it's, it gets dicey. I, I, I played a little bit in, in that space six, seven years ago. Yeah. And, and yeah, you, you're kind of at the mercy of, of there's a lot of trust that has to be involved. Yes. And so we had some success, but like for the most part, I stayed us based. Okay. Um, and what my business actually did was um, I picked up a partner along the way who I had been doing different things with and she and I um, we found that you know, this is before the direct to consumer industry has exploded to what it is today. Right. We found that um, nobody really likes to play in the consumer, consumable goods, edible, like real food product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Once you're ingesting something, there's this whole nother level of risk that people were petrified oh, yeah. of. A. Yeah. So, what we did was um, we actually white labeled. So people hear of private label, people hear food as an industry uses the term white labeling because yep. think about it, like whether whether you go to Costco or BJ's, so Costco has Kirkland, um, BJ's has Berkeley's and Jensen's or whatever, even go into like here regionally, like their stop and shop, their shop, right? Depending on where you live in the country, maybe you have, um, you know, a Publix, maybe you have Piggly yep. Wiggly, maybe you have whatever, you know, um, Kroger's. Each one of those companies, each one of these grocery stores, right? They run on thin margins. So where where are they going to make up the juice, right? Like where are going where are they going to make up the money? They make it in this white label, right? So they go to Heinz and they're like, listen, you're producing whatever twenty tons of ketchup a day. Yeah. Siphon off whatever a quarter of a ton, and slap our label on the bottle, and let's call it a day. And we'll pay you roughly your you know a little bit above your cost. Your your machine's running anyway. Who the heck cares, right? right. Yep. And, and that's more or less like, I mean, I'm simplifying it in massive terms. And like Heinz may say, well, we have a proprietary formula, but you get the point, right? Yeah, they slightly adjust something. Yeah. And, yeah. and Heinz may say no, and Hunt says, okay, you know, like right. whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and there's also a fear. Like, I know, like, if you really dive into it, like Costco is one of those Kirkland brand is, is like people love to do business with them until they don't. What happens, right? Like you kind of manufacture for them and then they kind of like say, oh, show us how this works. And next thing you know, they're manufacturing and they cut you out, right? Yeah, yeah, but, I've heard that. But but for the most part, let's let's play at a very like low level, right? Like me, I'm not doing the volume that Costco is doing. Right. So there's no fear yeah. that if you show me the secret sauce that I'm going to replicate it with. Yeah. You. Put you out of business. So, um, so we found products that we were wholesaling mm. already. So we knew the strength of the product 
And it was, we didn't find that the product strength was brand dependent. We found that it was product need, want dependent. And who is that buyer? And once we understood all that, we would go to them and like, listen, how about you white label this and just basically make this product for us. We're going to buy the same way, but just slap it in our label, our box, our packaging. So some people are like, go fly a kite. And some people were like, yeah, we're into that. But right? you're talking about consumables. Yes. Okay. All right. Interesting. So our business is primarily food. Okay. And, you know, people buy our stuff and it's not because they have some affinity to the brand. It, right. it tastes good. It, it does what they want, whatever it is. We understand the al Amazon algorithm. We understand the category. We understand the listing. We understand the advertising, all of these things. And so the business works. Now, it's a very, obviously, it's a very Amazon focused, right? So yeah. we wanted to be able to kind of see, see if we could shift certain things away from Amazon to own the customer, right? Amazon's very clear. It's their customer. Yeah. And, yeah, and therefore they that's, have customer that's service. That's a risk you run, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, and so like certain products, we've been able to do that and certain products we haven't. And, mm -hmm. and like, we know that going in. And so the way I looked at, at that business was it's a cash flow business. It's yeah. not something I can sell per se. Like mm -hmm. it became like the aggregators out there. Like if anybody follows the space, like you have companies like Thrasio and all these guys who were trying to roll up FBA brands. Yeah. Um, I personally didn't understand how that model is going to work. I think we're already seeing to, starting to see the cracks in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, Thrasio announced layoffs of nine, 10%, you know, probably like in the last two, month or two, a lot of money went into the space. And it was just like, I think like a lot of private equity, a lot of, you know, investors were like, oh, this seems like a brilliant idea. And I looked at it as both an investment guy and a business guy and said, I can't figure out how this actually makes any sense. And here's the picture I, I would paint. And that is, if, if you want to stay in a vertical, right? So, so let's just say, hey, I am a health and wellness company, right? So I have new nutraceuticals, I have supplements, I have whatever it is now, which is a super competitive space. But let's yeah, just say that yeah. that's what I did, right? Okay. I can understand if you're going to roll up, like I have a probiotic and I have a multivitamin and I have a creatine and I have a focus and I have all these things. Right. And like, so I want to buy other people's who have just one-off products sure. that makes sense to kind of yeah. roll it up because yeah. now I have like a company that either uh, GNC says we want to carry your line or, you know, a, a, a company in that space says, oh, we want to serve that avatar. We want that market. They can acquire us. Right. And, yeah, because in, in that sense, you're really building a brand which is going to put you in a position to to shift away from Amazon or at least not be entirely dependent on Amazon. Whereas if you just got a bunch of different one-off products, maybe they're in a similar category, maybe they're not, you're you're pretty well tied to, to Amazon at that point. A thousand percent agree with that. And and even let's just say, okay, let, let's play out that scenario even a step further. I've got barbecue uh, equipment, you know, I got, I got my grill cleaner and a hamburger flipper, right? I've got some oven mitts. Um, I've got, um, I don't know, let's, let's say a household cleaner of some sort. I have uh, socks. I have some food. I have uh, a, a supplement, right? Like I got random crap, right? Yeah, all over and the place. Let's say I somehow manage on each brand at a brand level, right? 
so we've got company name at the top. So let's just call it, you know, Freedom Co. And mm-hmm. then, you know, my, my barbecue stuff is called, you know, Freedom Barbecue. And my, you know, household stuff is called Freedom Household. And pick your thing, right? Yeah. Even still, let's say I drive people to my, my freedomshop.com, okay? And I own the customer. If we really think about this, like, are we going to go head to head with Procter & Gamble, right? Like, like realistically, am, am I going to go public and say, hey, you know how Procter and Gamble has Crest and Colgate, uh, Crest and 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 Bounty and Tide. That's us. Just think of us, but on a smaller scale. No, right. Like the amount of billions of dollars of advertising that they have ingrained in our brains, right? It's insane. Yeah. So, so going public, first of all, is like ugh, people. I don't even think understand the cost and in, in the and the stuff like that. So, what happened in the last couple of years? Like SPAC. Oh, we'll kind of we'll shortcut going public. Once you go public, you're still public in the sense that like the investor expects you to manage earnings and, and get mm-hmm. all these little miles. You're not growing a business the same way. It's totally different. But coming back to this, am I going to compete with, with Procter & Gamble? Probably not. Is Procter & Gamble going to buy me? Mm, probably not. Yeah. And now I'm not in a vertical that someone's like, oh, you know what? You've got the stay-at-home mom who really wants to do whatever and that I want that customer. So I'll buy your business. Like when, right. when people look at like companies like RX bar, right? So RX bar gets acquired by Kellogg. Why is Kellogg buy them? Kellogg buys them because Kellogg is big and clunky and can't actually innovate for the paleo eating crossfitting person. But if I can get them into my world of Kellogg product right. by owning this customer as an RX bar customer, now I'll give them RX cereal and I'll give them RX whatever the heck else they want, right? Maybe I can up, upstream them into other products that Kellogg's makes. That makes sense for me to pay $600 million for this business. Yeah. But if I've got like a person who grills, a person who cleans the house, a person who wears socks, there's no congruency with my customer base. I have no idea what my avatar is. Why would I ever buy your business? Makes total sense. And so like their pitch was always like, we are more efficient. We advertise better. We know PPC better, all, all true things, but that doesn't make for a good roll up, you know? Well, yeah, exactly. And, and just because you're better at some of those things, you don't have as much money to throw at it as these huge corporations do. Yeah, I, that's true too. And, and even if you, like the argument I think was like, hey, we'll improve your margins, right? So let's say you're a standalone guy selling barbecue stuff. And you're making 18% net margins. We're so good. We're going to take it to 22 or 23%. And so we'll pay you a premium, blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. But now you get it to 22 or 23%. Now what? Like, what is your investor? Yeah. What's the exit strategy for your investor, right? And so as the guy who built this barbecue business and you sold it, good for you. (laughs) Good on you. Take that money and do something else. Hell yeah. But these roll-ups, now they have to answer to an investor eventually right? Like they've got to answer like what, what's going to be. And that's where I think the, the strategy fell apart and like, yeah, are you going to go billions of dollars compete with, with Procter and Gamble type of thing too? Yeah. I, I would imagine, I mean, you know, the world better than I do, but I would imagine, you know, the private equity firms and stuff are kind of sitting there looking at everything that's happening, you know, on Amazon with FBA and stuff and, and seeing, how much money's moving through it. And, and we got to get in this somehow. And, and I would imagine there was, there was some sense of urgency to just say, Hey, we got to be like first in and we'll figure out the model once we're in, but we need to like be, we need to be all over this. We don't want to be late to the party. 
Yeah, I I actually it's funny. Like I w- was offered to invest in in Thrasio probably I don't know six times over the last six years. Oh really? At, diff- at different rounds, right? They've yeah, raised yeah. a lot, a lot mm-hmm. of money at a at some steep valuations. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, I just I can't see how they may be the biggest roll up, but I can't even see how this roll up actually turns out to be a winner from a investment return. Right. As an investor, um, how what am yeah. I going to see out of this? What does that look like? How Correct. long? Yeah. And and like also, I mean, things in general, like in the private investing space, when if you invest in something and it's valued at $10 million, okay, and next year someone invests at a $50 million valuation, and the next year it's a $100 million valuation. So in theory, your the value of your position has gone up 10x, right? Mm-hmm. You went in at 10 million and now it's 100 million. But guess what? You have zero liquidity, right? So it's, it's, right. In, it's phantom, it's paper. And Yes, if I owned a public stock, it would be the same thing, except I could sell it on a dime, right? Yeah, and I, exactly. I have no liquidity here. And then they go out and they raise money at a, a $500 million valuation. And you're like, holy crap, like this is this 50X. I am printing. Yeah, let me cash this out. But you can't, you can't. right? Yeah. And so, yeah, there are people who got into Thrasio at, you know, 10 million or 100 million. And the last round that they raised, I think was like towards the end of 2021, um, maybe to, I'm trying to remember the timing. I could go look, but whatever it's public, you could, you just search it up. Yeah, yeah. It was a ten billion dollar valuation. Wow, was it? I had no idea it was that. That was that the implied valued. valuation of wow. where things were going. I am curious. Yeah. If uh, you know where it would be valued today, I I have a pretty good personal view, and I will you know keep that to myself. But um it's not going to be there. Right. And maybe right. later someone will come back, but I think the public markets, I mean, uh, Instacart is a, is another good example mm-hmm. of in the public markets, they have stated that I can't remember if their latest round of financing in 2021 was either um, 26 billion, 24 billion, maybe 39 billion. I don't, I don't remember the exact number again, Google it. It's, it's in an article. Um, but they have announced this year in 2022 that they have to revalue the company at like a $19 billion valuation. So you're talking- why, why would that be? So either new money had to come in okay. and the new money said this company is not worth what it I got was you. before. Okay, yeah. Um, some, the other time, the other reason though you, you value a business and you don't typically talk about it publicly is when you hire executives or even any employees, you give them shares yeah. at a, a set valuation yeah. so that their strike- uh, on the options are, so you give you don't have to give them shares, you can give them options and you say, okay, today we just raised money at a, you know, call it $30 billion valuation. So your strike price on your options would be $30 billion. And so therefore, if, if, if the company goes public and you, and the company is worth 30 billion, you're at break even, you wouldn't exchange your options. But if it becomes worth 60 billion, you'd be like, Hey, I could buy it at 30 and flip it out at 60. Great. Yep. But let's say your strike is at 30. And the company was public at 15. Well, you're underwater, right? Like it yeah. didn't cost you anything, but like, you know, opportunity cost, so to speak. Sure. So, so companies, this is called a 409A. Companies actually do this and they report what it is. And that's why like on public companies, um, you see like these options expenses, like it's this quote unquote non-cash thing, but it kind of is, and it, it hurts earnings per share. Like if, if you kind of look at a lot of the tech companies, they have this stuff and it's like super boring accounting crap. But the reality is, is that there's a true cost to some mm-hmm. of this. And so they mm-hmm. actually have to do this annually. And most of the time they don't report 
publicly. They don't, they don't put out a press release. Hey, we've revalued the thing, you know, like it doesn't, yeah. they, they don't do that. Um, and once you go public, you don't need to do that the same way because the public market has given a value. So sure. the options are struck at a given value based yeah. on the market at that point in time. So this is all for private companies. Um, so, so that's a reason to do it. But ultimately, you know, I kind of got into Amazon and we kind of got off on that, got into this stuff, but I met more and more business owners. Yeah. And this is what started happening. This is they're like, oh, you understand business because you're one of us, right? So I'm not viewed as like, oh, you've got this finance job, right? They're like, you're you're like one of us. Sure. You understand our business. So this, this yeah. is relatability, right? Like just like if we started talking franchises and I knew a little bit, like there'd be a connection on that, right? Yep. So ultimately, um, I would list people would be like, oh, you know, I'm thinking about uh, buying a, a second home to rent out as, as an investment property. And I'd be like, oh, I don't hear, you know, do you know this? Do you know that? Do, and they're like, oh, how do you know about that? I'm like, well, you know, my, my job or like yeah. um, you want to invest in stocks. Oh, my job, like all these things. And what happened was, is like people were just naturally coming to me for finance, investing, financial wealth building advice. And I was freely dispensing it because I'm like, yeah, A, I love to help, but B, I realized that there was such a gap yeah. in the knowledge base. And it's because like, you know, we don't learn this stuff in, in school, right? Like, I mean, the truth is actually this past year in my, my, one of my kids was a senior in high school okay. and I taught to the seniors, um, you know, an elective, we did finances and we did investing and we did things of that nature. I love hearing that. And it, it's like, it's necessary. I'm like, do you know what a credit card is? Do you know how a credit card works? Do you know, yeah. like, so personal finance 101 for a high school kid is, is so, it's so trivial to us. We take it for granted because like, I don't know, you get thrown, it's kind of like parenting, right? Like it, it doesn't really take much to have a kid, but nobody gives you a manual and they kind of expect you to like know what's going on. You have it's, to figure it out. Right. It's, it's so adulting 101, right? Like, you know, it used to be, I remember like, oh, uh, you know, checkbook, balance your checkbook. Like, okay, do you have any idea like what your cost of living is? You say to a business owner, you know, how much, how much does it cost you to live? They'd be like, I have no idea. I'm yeah. like, well, do you know the P&L of your business? Oh, of course I know. Like, so why, why don't why you know what life? It, yeah. Why don't you understand? And like, have you ever told your kid, like, you know, how this works? No, no. You know, like I, I learned the hard way. Great. Well, save them the pain, right? Exactly. You know? <laughs> Use so, that to your kid's benefit. Um, yeah. So like what, what ended up happening is like, I, I've built, that's where results advisory came out of. Okay. It came out of this need to both educate as well as give people opportunities. So let's say your business is doing really well. Okay. My business is doing well. I need to invest. I don't know what I'm doing. So, you know, my, my brother's uh, next door neighbor, who's best friend who went to college, he's a broker at Edward jo Jones. Amazing. He'll take care of you. Okay. So you call him up, Merrill Lynch, not trying to knock any one firm. Don't, you know, whatever. Sure. But the, the thing with financial services is it's a heavily regulated, yep. complicated industry. Why is it complicated? Well, because they made it complicated so that they can make money. So, okay? so not everyone can just do it for themselves. Right. And even you can now, like the world has evolved that in theory, yeah. you could do it for yourself, but there's all this like underlying unknowns. And so, so the guy at Edward Jones or Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley or wherever he is, he may be a really good guy. And he may, really deep down may be looking out for your benefit long-term, but he's constrained to the box that he has put in. Okay. He can only sell you or offer you or advise you on what is existing in the box at Edward Jones or Merrill Lynch or wherever he works, his independent firm allows him to play in. And so I, I love this. I'm, I'm nodding my head. So literally either yesterday or the day before had a call 
my wife and I with our, I guess what I would consider our, our financial advisor or one mm -hmm. of our financial. So he's with Northwestern Mutual. Yeah. I started working with this guy when I was in college. I remember going into his office. We went through this whole exercise. He's like, congratulations, you have like a negative $80,000 net worth. Uh, you know, I had like some student loans. I didn't have any assets. Yeah. Um, and, and he's a good guy. He knows his stuff. Yeah. I, I genuinely, I mean, he worked with me for years where he was really, I mean, I, I started not putting, making a penny. <laughs> I put a hundred dollars a month into a Roth IRA. That was the first thing I did with him. And yeah. probably the only thing I did with him for four or five years. Right. Yeah. So dude's been with me for a long time, spent a lot of time teaching me, coaching me. And, and, you know, now we've got significantly more resources. And so we've gone on to do some other things with him, but the point I'm getting at is because this is this is what I love about what you're doing, right? Especially the fact that it sounds like at least so many of your clients are entrepreneurs and, and business owners because it's different, right? You know, we, my wife and I, neither of us have had a W-2 income for years now, right? So, so I guess what most people would view as traditional investment routes just haven't made as much sense for us, right? Like we're still putting away money for retirement, right? But it's not mm -hmm. through like a company matched 401k or, or anything like that. Um, we're still investing in the market, right? But at the same time, you know, we just got comfortable years ago that, you know, we want to primarily invest in ourselves, right? So we've gone out, we've built businesses, right? We've taken money that we could have put in the stock market, and we've put it into another business, you know, we've done some real estate and stuff. But so anyways, this conversation with our, our financial advisor, he's like, because I think my wife asked the question, she's like, what else should we be doing? And he's like, well, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this. He's like, these are really all the buckets that I have for you guys, you know, within the, the Northwestern mutual uh, parameters that I yep. have. He said, you know, I, I would recommend doing these things, but he's like, there are certainly other things you guys should be doing. Unfortunately, I'm not in a position to help. The other thing he said that I, and I'll be curious your thoughts on this because he's like, look, you guys have kind of figured out how to hit like triples and and in some cases home runs. Whereas like most of the stuff I'm going to have for you, you're going to look at it as like a single. Right. Uh, and I, and I made the comment to him. I'm like, yeah, I mean, honestly, like I look at, you know, some of the stuff we're doing with you and even just like other investment options I've looked at and, you know, we've got businesses that we've put less than a hundred thousand dollars into, and within two years, you know, we're bringing in two, three hundred thousand dollars a year in income. I look at traditional investments, and it doesn't get me excited. Like once you kind of get a taste of some of that, you know, bigger ROI. Not that it's always yeah. going to be that way, but and he said he's like, I, I get it, man. He's like, this is boring for for someone like you, and and so I, the whole point I'm getting at is what you're saying and what you're doing for your clients resonates with me in a big way um, because traditional financial advisors, financial services, they're, they're pretty narrow in terms of what, what you can actually do with them. And, and it's not always going to be the, the best, or at least where you want all your eggs, I guess. Yeah, I, I would agree. Right. Like, so they, they're designed for the, let's call it average person. And yeah. it may not even be best for the average person, but that's what they're designed for. Yeah. Okay? And when, when you think about this, 
and and I love the fact that he was like totally honest with you, right? Like, because yeah. other people like they'll they'll try and shove you into yeah. like whatever whole life solves a whole life policy solves everything, right? Like it'll solve world hunger if you give it enough time, right? <laughs> right. And it compounds, compound. And and I have I listen. I have one of those policies. My wife has one of those policies. I actually think I have two of them. And and like then you'll read up if you if you want to read like this be your own banker or infinite banker or whatever you know these things like you borrow against that the policies because it's it's a cash asset. All these things are true. There's nothing like they're not like lying to you. I can I can count on like a single hand the number of people who have these policies who actually then go and borrow the cash. The 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 first like almost 10 years I had one of those policies. I was putting the cash in and like oh, I could borrow. I didn't pull, I, I was making investments and I never borrowed against it. Yeah. Was I stupid? Probably, but in theory, like you just don't, you just don't, you put the money away and you forget, right? You forget and, about it. Yeah. yeah. Unless you're one of the people who like truly, truly buy into it and like, I'm going to buy a car. So you borrow it. And instead of paying the bank, you pay yourself. And, and yeah. okay, so the bank would charge me 6%. So I'm going to pay myself back six and a half percent. Like, unless you're like rigorously religious about it, it yeah. just, it doesn't play out the way people kind of think. And you and, probably need someone managing that for you to, to be as rigorous with it as, as you need to for it to end up making sense. And then I'm sure there's fees that, that come with that. So it maybe negates some of the benefit of doing it in the first place. Yeah. I mean, it, it also depends on your personality. This is where, when I talk to someone for the first time, I tell everybody personal finance has the word personal in it for a reason. Mm. Because your risk appetite is not my risk appetite and it's yeah. not your neighbors and it's not the guy up the block. Yeah. And, and so like when you look at, you know, investing in a business, right. Or a franchise or whatever it is, or, or some hybrid model. Right. And you're like, okay, I put 50 to hundred grand in and two years from now, it turns out it's cash flowing $200,000. Okay. First and foremost, right. Like we, we say that because you've done it, but at the same time, you also know that that 50 or a hundred, whatever you put in could go to zero. Absolutely. Right? So yeah. the risk reward is, is there and you're willing to take that whether yeah. or not you're going to spend the personal time on it or not, but you've made that calculation and you're comfortable with it. Yep. But your neighbor may be like the hell with that. No yeah. way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, Oh yeah. Give me 10% a year and I'll call it. A I'll day, take it. Right. Yeah. Yep. And so like, okay, now you've done it and you've thrown off $200,000 in cash flow. Okay. And you still own the asset. Yeah. So the question now becomes like, okay, at what point does your risk tolerance start to shift? Because you're like, okay, I don't want to run another franchise. Or you know what? I can take 50 or 100 of this 200, but I know that it's going to be high risk again. And so I'm going to take the other 100 and I'm going to do that slow and steady boring crap. Right. But I won't have to think about it. I'm not going to manage it. I'm not going to have to run it. I'm going to put it in a real estate property or three real estate or four real estate across four different properties that someone else is managing, right? Like what we would call like a sponsor, right? The, mm -hmm. the guy who buys the 100 to 200 units or the self-storage deal, right? And you're getting quarterly checks, right? And yep. it's not sexy at all. It's 6 to 10%, right? Yep. And then at the end, maybe he sells it for like a 50% premium over five to 10 years. So net, net, your money doubled or 150% return over 10 years. So yeah. an average annual return of 15%, right? Which is Nothing good. sexy, which is really damn good though, right? And yeah. you, at the core though, you actually owned an asset, right? But you didn't have to think about it. The cash flow came in. 
And at the same time, though, you love still doing these businesses. So you're still taking some of that money and buying another franchise or building a new business, right? And yeah. So that's that flex model. Yeah, totally. And and that's what I like about what what you're doing, right? Because so like just using my wife as I and I as an example, our I think our risk tolerance has has gotten to where it's probably higher than than a lot of people's are. We've had some success, we've built some confidence in ourselves, all that. But, you know, so we, we currently own two franchises. I have a consulting business for us. It's not even so much about risk tolerance. It's about bandwidth, you know, cause you, you made the comment earlier and I couldn't agree more passive income. There, there's no such thing as passive business ownership in, in my opinion. Right. right? Like <laughs> one of our franchises, we've got a GM, like he puts in the vast majority of the hours on a daily, weekly, monthly basis to run that business. But it's always in the back of my mind, if not the front of my mind. But I'm you always also probably put, time into it. You probably also put a decade in before the GM kind of stepped into that seat. Super smooth. Well, ex- exactly right. And we put up all the money, taking yeah. all the risks. So, so for us, it's it's not even just the the risk tolerance has yeah. changed a little bit. And like we do have three kids now, whereas we didn't have a kid when we started the first one. Like we little yeah. little more on the line, I guess. We need to make sure we're being responsible with any risk we do take. Um, so, so yeah, now it's more like, okay, we've got this money, we've got this money coming in. Now, how do we put it to work for us in as passive of a manner as we can, but also in a smarter way than just stocking it away in a 401k and, and kind of crossing our fingers and, and hoping, you know, yeah. it shakes out the, the way we're, we're, we're hoping that it will. Correct. And, and, and like, and, and that's why, like, you know, you've been able to assess for you, like where you feel comfortable, what, where your bandwidth problems are, where your financial returns are, are objectively looking for. And I think the starting point for a lot of people, right? So you now have the means to write, you know, 25, 50, 100, $200,000 checks into an investment should you want to, right? But like go back in time, five, 10 years, that probably wasn't the case either, right? And now, yeah. therefore you're like, hey, we're going to invest on ourselves. We're going we're gonna to put in the time. We're going to do these things. And so I think, you know, going back to the, the comment I made about like how much does it cost to live? It's actually a really funny number that nobody ever thinks about because if, if you kind of like start Googling like, ah, uh, you know, early retirement or whatever, like there's this concept that I don't even know when it was started. I want to say it was somewhere in the early 2000s, right? This uh, fire, right? Financial free, you know, financial independence, retire early, right? Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. Also like, what does retire early mean? Like, does it mean like, you know, just sit on the beach or does it mean like, you know, do the things you love? Right. Okay, whatever. Yep. And then there's, so in, in fire, right? In this idea, it, there's this fat fire, there's lean fire, there's all these things, right? And like, it, it's an interesting like rabbit hole if, if someone doesn't know what I'm talking about, like you know, you'll, you'll lose yourself for a couple of days. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing is like lean fire. It's like, I, I look at that. I'm like, I don't know how anybody's gonna ever live on that number. Like these numbers are like so low. I'm like, you gotta be like in the middle of the forest and like have no obligations yeah. and whatever it is, right? Yeah. And then like fat fire, it's kind of like, I don't know, my cost of living in the tri-state area is pretty ridiculous. My property taxes makes probably most people throw up because it's unfair and whatever. But the the unfairly high to me, not, not, not to other people. Um, but, but, um, the point is, is like the idea is you want to be able to, in in any of these fire things, right. The idea is like the income of, or the growth of your portfolio or investments, your passive quote unquote, I'll use that word. Right. Um, is going to outstrip the cost of living. Mm -hmm. 
Well, if you don't know the cost of living, you can't figure out what your fire number or whatever these in the dark. Right. And so it's just like anything else, right? Like you don't, you, you don't get to go to a new town or a new state and be like, all right, let's all hop in the car and we're going to get to the mall. How are we going to get there? Well, you're going to take out Waze or Google Maps and it's going to know where you are today and it's going to know where you, you want to get to, right? And it's going to yeah. outline that. And it's the same thing with like your, your personal finances. Is, is it a fair point to, because I imagine this is something that, that gets overlooked a lot as well, you know, to assume so, you know, I'm in my, I'm 35, my wife's 32, uh, you know, young kids, pretty good quality of life. But is it, I mean, it's fair to say, like, we want our quality of life to continue increasing over time as well, right? Therefore, our cost of living would, will likely increase over time. So even if you say, all right, our cost of living today is, is X, so we need to plan according to that. I don't think most people just want to stay level, you know, right. for, for half of their lives. They want to, you know, everyone's goals so, are different, right? Correct. But I think most people that, are looking for improvement, right? Yeah. So I, th I think um depends where you are in the journey, right? Sure. Like, are you 25, 35, 45, right? Yeah. Where, where are you paying, you know, your biggest expenses today, right? Like mine is my kid's education. My, yeah. All my kids go to private school. And I already have a kid in college yeah. and that I'm paying for. Right. So like, I'm yep. in like, like I'm entering the peak of the peaks, right? Like I've got yeah. one kid in third, you just finished her junior year of college and I've got three other kids. So I have four kids and there are two in high school and one entering college next year. And the other one, like on the verge of high school. And again, cause I sent to private school, not to public school. I am paying a lot of tuition irrespective Indeed. before I even get to the college. Board, Indeed. Right? Yeah. But after that, I have to believe my cost of living is going to moderate a little bit. Yeah. Sure. Right. So, but when 10, 20 years ago, when I was doing this, I knew that my cost of living was going to go up because of education. But I also knew that, like you said, like I was going to want different things, right? We sure. built a 5,100 square foot home that we didn't have a decade ago. Right. Like, so all these things, but that comes back to you and me in that right. it's personal. Right. It's very yeah. personal. I don't value certain things that other people do, right? Yeah. Like I don't care, like, you know, I drive a, a, a nice car, but I am not into having like, I don't need to- A Lamborghini a or something. Yeah, I don't need a yeah. Lamborghini. I don't even need a Beamer, right? Like right. I, 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 you know, I'll disclose, I drive a Infiniti QX60. It's a nice yeah. SUV. Nice whatever, car, but, it, but it's but, not the flashiest correct. car. And, if, and the truth of the matter is, if you told me, you know what, you got to downgrade to a Toyota 4Runner uh, or a Highlander, I'd be like, fine, yeah. you know? But there are other people who'd be like, hell no. Like, right. I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't be de seen dead in a Toyota Camry. Right. And I'd be like, I don't care. Like, you know, right. that's just, that's yeah. my personality versus different, yours. different Correct. things for different people. And, and so, you know, I've been on a number of podcasts and they ask, like, it's a very interesting question. What's one thing you splurge on un unapologetically. And in the beginning, I was like, huh, that's such an interesting question. And in my head, I'm like, I don't think I splurge on anything. Cause like, I'm not like, that's just not my personality. Yeah. And so at first I was like, oh, you know, like education, like books, and courses and all that kind of stuff. Like, like I, I'm willing to invest in myself. Like yeah. that's why that was always my, like my first thought. But then I realized my wife and I, I don't know, probably about 10 years ago, we started every summer, our kids now go to sleepaway camp and they're away. And my wife doesn't work in sleepaway camp anymore. Right. So we go for, uh, even before she did, we would go before the kids went to camp or whatever. Um, we'll try and go five to 10 day vacation, just the two of us. Love it. And that trip we don't go like, you know, low end, right? Yeah. Like we're like, okay, 
we're traveling, we're staying at whatever the, the St. Regis or whatever it is. Yeah, nice and, resort, everything, correct. you know, and, as little work on your part as possible, I would assume. Correct. Yeah. And it's like, that is my, and, and the truth of the matter is, it's like, I'm not going to go, like, if I'm flying three hours, I'm not, I'm not spending the money for a first class ticket. That's like a stupid, again, that's my personal view, but sure. like, it's not a good trade. But if I'm traveling like a 15 hour flight, yeah, I'd probably, you know, look to uh, upgrade that seat. Cause uh, you know, thankfully I'm not six, six and, and can't sit and coach, but at the same time, it's still uncomfortable. A lot more comfortable. Yeah. So I think you have to kind of validate for yourself, like what is more important to you? Like I, I happen to also not love, tra I, I don't love traveling around the world. I've, yeah. I've learned a lot about myself, right? Like I like certain things. And, and so therefore, like, I also am not that guy who wants to be on the move every three days. Yep. My wife kind of does. So we have to kind of like strike that balance. Balance it. Yeah. Yeah. But so, so the point I'm making though, is like, yeah, the cost of living may go up, obviously in an inflation environment like this, everyone's cost is going up, but when you model it out, you need to think about today. You should think about the future. And, and the truth of the matter is, is la I don't know, I lost track of time. Where are we? 2022. So the summer of 21, um, I actually did a, I created a course called Future Fund. So it's futurefundme.com. And it's really designed to kind of get you these basic building blocks of understanding, like, what's your, you know, cost of living today? What does your future cost of living look like? So we call it like the dream cost of living. Um, what does your dream life look like? So we know what that annual spend could look like. And then there's really only two ways to kind of cover that, right? Like create cash flow, either from passive investments or whatever that's going to pay for that in the future, or grow a pot of money that you can pull off of every mm -hmm. year and that it'll still grow that pot, but you can pull down your cost of living and live off of that for whatever 30 years or whatever you want to be doing, right? Is it and, ideal to have a combination of both, right? Kind of I, I like the combination of both. Yeah. The challenge for a lot of people is um, sometimes if they're not making enough cash today to buy an asset that's going to cash flow that much, it takes a little bit of time yeah. to kind of grow that pot. Right. And so like if you invest in yourself and you grow businesses, it shouldn't be hard. Right. But if you're like, you know, early in the, in the process or you're an employee or whatever it is, or you're, you're dreaming of it, you probably have a harder time writing that 25 plus thousand dollars. Yeah, check. for sure. And it, it's harder to, to, I guess, level up faster, right? Like if you're got a salary, you yes. know, even if you get an, uh, a raise next year, like you're only going up slightly, whereas, and again, all risk and reward, right? But if you're, you know, building businesses or, or even working for someone else, but saying like a commission only type, position right where there's really no ceiling yeah you can level up in a year or two period faster than than someone i guess with just like a typical w-2 and then you can get those kind of bigger yeah. pots of money to go put into and more passive investments agreed and i also think like if you're a w-2 and you're like i i'm not ready to leave or i'm scared to leave like start it as a side hustle do something at night you know go, like, go I, start an amazon business right yeah I mean, th there's lots of things you could do, right? You can learn yeah. a skill and sell the skill. That's the lowest barrier to entry, lowest cost, lowest risk is go learn a skill, spend whatever, $500 to $2,000 on, on education, right? Yeah, you could spend your whole day on YouTube probably learning a bunch of stuff. And I'm, I'm not knocking 
learning for free. I have nothing against it. But a lot of times, like if you pay for something, you value it more. Yeah, it's a mindset thing. Yeah. So, okay, we learn a skill and now I learn copywriting. Copywriting for anyone who's listening doesn't know what they're talking about. Like what that is, it's like, hey, I put words on a page and I make you take action, right? It's it's the psychology of pulling you through. When you get to that ad, you're like, oh, and you're like, you read this whole thing. And you're like, buy, 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 right? Yeah. So that's a skill maybe helping a company who wants to get better at social media, learn how yeah. to run their Instagram, TikTok, or, you know, Facebook pages. Podcast editor, right? I pay yeah, someone exactly. to edit all these podcasts for me. A hundred percent. These are investable in yourself, learn a skill, and then translate that. And so you're trading time for money. Yeah. But you are actually starting to build excess cash, which the idea is to take that cash and not, you know, go buy a car. The idea is to take it and invest it either in yourself again, to get better at something, or, to invest it in a business, invest it in stocks, invest it in real estate, whatever kind of fits your parameters so yeah. that you can start to kind of grow that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, like you say, it's, it's totally personal for everyone. Right. And, and you really do need to sit down and spend some time thinking about, you know, what do I want my life to look like? Right. Yep. A year yep. from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Um, you know, cause again, my wife and I, invested in ourselves early on, had some success there, but we also busted our butts in the process, right? Now we've got a young family and we're getting to a point where we've got some money to, to invest and go put to work for us, but we also are starting to value our time in a different way, right? Yeah, we've no, we've never sure. been afraid to work hard. We don't mind it, but with the kids and stuff now, it's like, we don't want to always be working. We want to have time with the kids and stuff. So not only do we expect that our cost of living will continue to go up, but we want to put ourselves in a position where we have to actually work less hours Yeah. Sure. Uh, at the same time, right? So you've got to have, you know, not only the, the vision and a good plan that's tied to that vision, but, um, and, and again, I, I just think, and, and I'm wondering if you can maybe kind of give some examples, um, you know, because most people, when they think of investing, they think of 401ks, they think of, you know, yeah. the stock market. Um, what are what are some of the types of investments that I guess you're you're recommending to? And, and again, we've established it's it all depends on where someone is, what their goals are, all of yeah, that. Totally. But what what are I, I don't know. What are some of the things that that you look at today and say, hey, these are these are smart types of investments to start looking at that are maybe not as, as traditional? Yeah. So I think, I I think, um, I think it's a great question. I think it's a relevant question and and fair for anyone to be thinking about. So the world changes so fast relative, like literally go back five years ago, 10 years for sure. The amount of change that happens now almost on a monthly annual basis is is crazy. Right. So I'm me personally, I like diversification. asset classes within all this different stuff. So like I'm invested in real estate. Mm -hmm. I'm invested in businesses. I'm invested in stocks. I'm invested in crypto. I'm invested in um, angel investing. So like startup businesses, even in not definitive. Um, I advise companies. And so sometimes I'll, I'll trade dollars for equity. If I think there's a long-term play here, right? So there's lots of different modalities. That being said, okay. Um, again, this going back to the personal kind of thing, there are so many different things that like, if you look at crypto and you're like, 
this is the next world. This is the next thing. I don't know anything about it, but I want to learn it, right? So it's going to take a lot of time to get your arms around certain things. And not because it's like super complicated, but to pick a winner in that space is kind of like a little bit arbitrary in yeah. the sense that like, there's no way to know how that technology works out and stuff like that. But there's so much noise too. Like in, in this day and age, it doesn't matter what you're trying to research. There's so much noise. So just sifting through what's yeah, legitimate sure. information, what's legitimate advice versus someone trying to sell you a course because they figured it out or, or you know, whatever yeah. the case is. A hundred percent. And that goes back to the whole what's passive, what's active, right? Like if I sit here and I tell you trading options is the best way to generate income, guess what? You are now going to be sitting in front of this computer all day trying to learn the charts and then study the markets. And you're not going to either do your job, grow your business, do whatever it is. Right. And so yeah. now you've traded time for this new job. You created a new job for yourself. Right. Yep. So I, I think like in terms of things people could do, the, the market has shifted. Like we had this conversation like six to 12 months ago, there were a lot of platforms and, and I say it's shifted. Like it depends where your listener is, right? Like if they're outside the U S certain things are different for them as well. But like the sec has started to get involved in certain things where a year ago they weren't. So a platform like BlockFi, which is basically it's a crypto platform. Um, and it's, it's a, you know, wallet, just like Coinbase or whatever these things are, but, um, they, what they do really at the core of their business is they lend, they're a lender. Yeah. And, and so you park an asset. So think of Bitcoin or Ethereum or a stable coin um, as an asset. You park it there. They basically are going to lend out on that. Okay. And so they're going to, let's say, make 12%, 1% a month on this loan. And people are listening like, what, what the hell are you talking about? Okay. So let, like, let's break it down. I own one Bitcoin. So let's just hypothetically say it's worth $30,000 in today's market. Okay. Yep. You own one Bitcoin. You you say, okay, I have, oh, actually, you know what? You have $10,000 of cash, okay? You take your $10,000 of cash and you go buy something, uh, stable coin. Now, we're not talking about UST, which was tied to this Terra and Luna network, which crashed back in May. Mm -hmm. um, we're talking about something, let's say, USDC. USDC is, it's back dollar for dollar. What that means right. is every dollar that goes into this thing, there is a dollar of treasury, US treasury or something that's sitting behind it. The thing doesn't move. It's a buck. It's always a buck. So if the value of the dollar goes down, doesn't matter. You have a dollar. If the value of the dollar goes up, doesn't matter. You have a dollar. You have a freaking US dollar. That's what you have, yeah. right? And it's pegged. So you go and you take $10,000 fiat US dollars and you buy 10,000 USDC on their platform. Okay, so now you have this USDC and you say, I'm going to park it right here. Okay, they say to you, okay, we're going to give you 7% interest on your $10,000. A 7% interest a year ago was like a pretty crazy amount because like, you know, rates were down, everything you get, your bank was giving you less than a half a percent. You're like, that's a home run. That's riskless. What do they do with this? Like, why are they giving you 7%? How does this work? What they do is they are like a traditional bank in that they take your $10,000. Okay. And they're like, okay, who wants to borrow $10,000 for 12% a year, 1% a month. And I'm like, well, I have a Bitcoin. I have this $30,000 asset. I don't want to sell the asset because I think the asset's going to go to 60,000. They're like, okay, you put your Bitcoin here. So now we kind of own it. It's collateral. Yep. And we're going to give you $10,000 and you're going to pay us 12% for the year. Now looks on paper. We're like, okay, let's stop here. They're going to make 12%. They're going to give you seven of it. They bank 5% basically for doing nothing, like for brokering yep. the deal, yep. right? Connecting it's a good model. Win, 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 win for everybody. Okay. And this is really how banks actually work, but like, let's keep it on, on the BlockFi. So BlockFi, how do you protect 
Wes's $10,000, right? Like, let's say I default on the loan. Let's say I can't pay the loan. Well, how are we going to protect Wes? Well, they're sitting on my Bitcoin, right? So RA's Bitcoin is sitting there and it's worth $30,000. And so if I default on the loan, guess what they're going to do? They're going to sell that Bitcoin. Yep. They're going to have $30,000. They're going to be like, here you go, Wes. Here's your 10 back. So you're protected. Oh, Aria, here's 20 grand for you. You, you borrowed 10 and uh, you know, whatever you, you default on your loan, but we sold your asset for 20. Okay. Sounds reasonable. Let's say Bitcoin goes to $20,000. Yeah. Right. Well, they're collateralized again, right? They sell the Bitcoin. They give you your 10 back. You're safe. And they say, okay, Aria, here's your 10. Uh, you know, the, the value dropped 10, but, and you owe us 10. Oh, so here you get zero or whatever, you know, like right. the net Some effect, wash. right? Yeah. Okay. No big deal. So when it triggers a certain threshold, their risk management says, okay, you know what? We have to blow this out when it hits 20. So we don't want the loan to value ever to be more than whatever it is. They have some algorithm that says, sell it. They don't ask me. They don't call me and say, hey, by the way, could you make a payment? No, you, this asset has declined in value. You may even be paying your loan on time. They don't care. They don't need to find out that the collateral is not enough. They'll be like, hey, you've got three minutes to put another Bitcoin in. Otherwise, we're just selling this thing out and you're done. Your loan's forgiven because we're going we're gonna to recoup our money. right? So the protection is there for you, yep. Wes, the, the investor. It's there for BlockFi so they don't get screwed. And kind of me, the borrower, I'm kind of screwed in the sense that like I just I lost my asset, but I, yeah. I don't know the, the loan. Right? So that was the model. So like a year ago, I would tell you, park cash there because you're going to get seven, eight, nine, 10%. I mean, two years ago, they were given like whatever, 10, 11%, whatever it was. So there were a lot of these platforms. The SEC got involved and said, Hey, listen, these, these are securities. You can't just like do it willy nilly. You still can earn outside the U S it doesn't exist, but outside the U S is not a problem, but it'll come back when the SEC kind of clears everything up. But right now you're in this no man's land. You cannot put fresh capital into this. If you have money there, it's earning interest. But if you want to put new money in, you couldn't. So, so, so to be clear, though, this is different than just owning Bitcoin, right? This is essentially leveraging Bitcoin that you may own. It's to, more, to it's more interest. taking cat. It's more taking your cat. You could do that too. They let okay. you do that too. But yeah. I, I was simplifying and saying, I have $10,000 in cash. Gotcha. Just parking yeah. cash there at a 7%. I got you. You could yep. take your Bitcoin and leverage it there too. You could take your Ethereum and leverage it there. Lots of things, but I was trying to keep it there. Super simple. Take $10,000 of cash, park it there and you're earning this. Got it. Yep. So um, right now, if we want to use the same $10,000 cash example, um, there's something called an I-bond. An I-bond is U.S. Treasuries, and um, U.S. Treasuries typically give you very poor rate of returns. Mm -hmm. The I-bond is a, you know, it stands for whatever, internet or whatever. You, you buy it online through the United States Treasury. The United States is, government is borrowing money from you. There is two components in I-bond. There is the inflationary rate, and there is the fixed rate. The fixed rate today is zero. They give you 0% interest on buying a U.S. Treasury but the inflationary rate gets reset twice a year. And it just reset in April. And it's based on the current inflation market. So in April, the market reset the inflationary component to 8.6% uh, or 8.3% or something. Okay. Very nice number, okay? So it won't reset now till October. In October, it will reset again. But for this period of time, you are going to earn 83 or whatever percent so it's, it's that the inflationary rate plus the fixed rate, the fixed rate is zero. So you're going to earn 8.3%. And is the inflationary rate tied to actual inflation? So as we see inflation Correct. continue to go, so it's not unreasonable to assume that in October when they reset it, it'll 
potentially be higher than it is now? Um, it will depend on what the actual what CPI right. um, inflation. In theory, if I were to actually speculate, right, this is not financial advice, and I, I would expect that the inflationary numbers in October, while inflation may be terrible and bad, and we may actually show signs, true recession by that point, the data yeah. may show that, I actually think the inflationary CPI numbers may come down. Okay. But they're not going to come to 3% what they historically were. They, they should come more into like the sixes. Um, and again, I'm not an economist. I'm not like predicting. Whatever. Yeah, not, not financial advice, not right. REA's fault if you blow everything on an high bond <laughs> next month. Um, You're capped at 10 grand, so whatever. Uh, <laughs> okay. And, so, and it so, can't default. It's the government. But so the how works, liquid are these though? If you, so like, here, Yeah. So here's the thing with these things. So the, the, the interest rate resets every six months. Okay? okay. The first year, you can't take your money out. So you're locked in for a year. Okay, so let's just say you get this 8.6 and let's say inflation drops to five. Let's just kind of call it that. So on the year basis, you're still going to get a six and a half percent return, right? On the blended basis, like, yeah. you know, on this eight and this five and whatever it is, right? After the first year, you can pull the money out, but they really okay. want you to stay in five years or more. If you pull it before, after one, before five, the, the penalty is they take away the last three months of interest from you. That's it. So it's, it's not like, okay, so now if we got a blended six and we lost uh, a quarter of the year, the return is not going to be that great. But the idea is like, it's, it's not liquid for a year. And then you can kind of like let it ride for a year and three months and you'll get that full year of return or whatever it is. If, if you're like, hey, I don't really need this money. You can let it ride for five years, but honestly- And then there's no penalty. Yeah, there's no penalty. But the truth of the matter is, is like in five years, the inflationary component should be back down and, and these things are going to be like whatever, two, three percent. It's not going to be attractive. Right. Right. So, so it's more of a short term play year. Parking cash. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Year minimum, exactly. maybe. And a there's year a ten thousand dollar cap. Yeah, there's a little bit workarounds. Your business can buy one. You could buy one. You know, like there, you have multiple business, multiple business can buy one. Like, could my whatever. wife buy one? I buy one. Um, each business buy one. I think the wife and husband may be the same. I, I, I'm okay. not an expert, yeah, like, but you could you, you Google it and you easily find it. Okay? okay. So again, this is what I would call super low risk, not yep. amazing return, but you're making money. But also very, this. very passive too, right? Correct. I mean, completely passive. It's parking like, cash. Yeah. Correct. Parking cash, legitimately parking cash. Um, so, so those are those are options that everyday people can do, right? We can we can be av dollar cost averaging into the S and P five hundred, right? Which yep. has no cost associated with it. Meaning, like you can set this up on recurring, whether it's Schwab, whether it's Fidelity, Vanguard. You, you pick something that has like almost no fees, right? Like yep. three basis points or whatever it is, right? So that's point zero three, you know, zero point zero three percent or right. whatever it is. So, and now you're just averaging in every month, every week, however you want to say it, it, look at it. And like, we may be down here for the next four years. You have no idea like what the recovery looks like. We could be down here like in, in 2020 when we bounced. I would not expect that, but who knows? But you're, you're, you're putting it in time and time again. So you're buying the average cost. Okay. Yep. That's another thing to do now. Granted, that's not going to give you short-term cash. It's not going to, but it's going to build longer term kind of wealth. Um, so now you have platforms like, so in the past, like single family home ownership was something I was really not a fan of for a lot of reasons, including landlord time, you know, all these things, maintenance, the short-term rental world has changed single family homes tremendously, Airbnb, yep. v, VRBO, whatever these things, it doesn't mean it doesn't come with a time investment. It doesn't mean that you don't have to manage it. And even if you outsource management, you either have to oversee it or going to pay 10 to 25%. Right. But 
the cash on cash return for some of these things are pretty significant. Yeah. Now people are like, oh, I can't even buy a home. How am I going to do this? There's another, there's like a, you know, a slightly variation of it. It's called like um, rental arbitrage. Mm-hmm. Basically you look for places that are trying to get tenants and you essentially say, can I sublet this out? Now it's not so simple. You can't just like go up to some owner and be like, Hey, can I commit to your $3,000 a month lease? And I'm going to sublet it out because it'd be like, why the hell would I let you do it? I can't rent it. Why the hell am I going to let you rent it? Yeah. You also need to know the local rules, right? Certain areas yep. do not allow short-term rentals. Florida HOAs have a lot of rules. Yep. New York city, like they've capped it like minimums 30 days. Like, so know your regulations or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But the point is, is that there are things that have evolved. So let's like, like, let's extrapolate that on a little bit more, right? So Airbnb, short-term rentals, great industry, lots of ways to do it. You can actually be the manager, right? Like if you don't have the cash, you could say, hey, why don't I go get 10 to 25% of managing other people's listings and yeah, that kind of thing, right? Well, another way to do this, right? Again, it's a time thing, but we're looking at all these things. So what's happened in the last, I don't know, let's call it, I don't know, five years, you have companies like you have platforms, management firms, all these things called like Yield Street, you have Realty Mogul, you have Arrived Homes, you have, uh, I don't even know, like I'm blanking, Masterworks, all, you know, and then there's a Rally, all these apps and, and platforms. What have they done? They've tried to mainstream, even like Republic, they've tried to mainstream um, what used to be for the wealthy. What I mean by that is like, okay, you and I talk about doing a passive real estate deal where maybe we're going to make like seven to 10% cash on cash. And then in the end they sell it and whatever. Those are requiring 25, 50, $100,000 checks, right? So the average person, mm, you shut me out. What am I going to do? So like things like Yield Street are like, hey, you have five grand, you have one grand, you have 10 grand, park it here, excuse me, and we'll give you a nine, 10% return. Is it riskless? No, it's not riskless. Yeah. Are they buying assets that the big players are buying? In theory. Do you have any insight and visibility into what they're doing? Not necessarily. So you're taking the risk that they actually know what they're doing and not making crap investments. Yeah. And you give up some control, at least on the, the exit side of it, right? I mean, total I, I'm not control as, giving up. Yeah, on, I'm on not stuff. super familiar with, with any of those platforms, but I've looked at... Um, I've, I've looked at similar, like, you know, Grant Cardone's got a fund and, and yeah. some of those essentially the same concept. Correct. I, the and so, so the, thing, the thing with a lot of these things is when they're trying to get to the retail investor, right. They're bringing it to the masses. Yes. But don't kid yourself. They're making money on you. Okay? Oh, for sure. Why and, else would they? <laughs> right. And so therefore what's happening is, is the return may be 20%, but they're giving you 15 they, they, they want you to feel like a hero, but really they're pocketing the, the, the VIG. Well, right? and that, that 5% difference across a lot of people yeah. adds up M- in a makes big a way pretty make, quick. Make, yeah. Makes a nice business for them, right? <laughs> yeah. like, so Masterworks does fractional ownership in like art. Rally uh, is like fractional ownership in sports cards, art, NFTs. You know, they're basically tokenizing and fractionalizing the world, right? So Arrived Homes is the same thing. It's, it's rental homes. Um, where you could buy at like hundred dollar bits. Okay. You, you know, all right. so, so it's all this kind of stuff. And I, the, there's the going to be so much more of this coming too, right? I mean, with NFTs really coming onto the scene and stuff, I think you use the term fractionalizing. I mean, I, yeah. I've got to imagine there's going to be more and more and more of these types of opportunities. Totally. There's more and more and more, but there's also more and more risk. 
and more noise, right? Yeah. Because what's you good, what's you don't not, know what's... Who's, who's doing what, right? And yeah. that's and that's like what I work with a lot of my clients when they come to me and they're like, okay, I want to do these real estate deals. I bring opportunities to them, but they also can bring me opportunities and I can- And you just them. kind of vet them. Right. Yeah. So, or I bring my own that I'm not the operator, right? Like I'm going to be an investor. I'm going to write this check, but I do the diligence and I vet the numbers. And I'm like, listen, this is, you know, we're, we'll close out on this point. And that is it's 2022. Okay. If someone comes to you and says, I've been doing multifamily or I've been doing self-storage for the last decade, that sounds really impressive. Sounds like a long time. You know, like, no, it's been more than a decade. I've been doing this for 11 years, make it 12 years. Okay, let's just paint the global picture here for a second. From 2010 or 11 till today, uh, it's been pretty damn hard to screw up real estate. Yeah. You've had increasing values, lowering interest rates, and no recession, no credit crunch, no anything. The stock market has basically, it's had dips, but it's basically gone vertical, right? Real estate, gone vertical. So, no one who has not gone through like an 08 or an 01 kind of recession ha who has that experience can actually tell you what happens in a downturn because yeah. they probably weren't even old enough to know, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I want to talk to the guy that started in 03 and is still doing well today. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's so, seen some shit. <laughs> and, and so that's like a legitimate thing where like one of the things I stress a lot is what we call a debt service coverage ratio. Meaning what that means is how much does this property throw off relative to how much I have to pay the bank? Because at the end of the day, this number, what I pay the bank, that's my critical lifeline. Because if I fall below that and I can't pay the bank, guess who owns my property? The bank, bank. right? The bank. Yep. If I can keep it out of the bank's hands and make it through the, the tough time that we may see, that's fine. You're good. But if, if you're bumping up against that number, they the only thing they could do is either call their investors and be like, hey, you got to put more money in or we're going to have to give this back to the bank or they're just going to give it back to the bank, right? right. And if they give it to the bank, your equity, you're like out. that money is, you're out, you're done, yep. right? Yep. You're toast. So- I love it, man. Look, thanks for for kind of walking us through all of this and and all the, the really detailed insight. I mean, you know, we could probably do three more podcast episodes and still not, you know, cover everything. I know I would like to hear from you, but, um, fascinating stuff. Um, quickly give us, you know, a couple places people can find you, connect with you, learn more. We'll post everything in the show notes to make it easy for people to find, but, uh, where can people get more? Sure. So the, the two sites are probably solutionadvisory.com or futurefundme.com. Um, I guess I'm more active on Instagram, which is REA the businessman, or you know, been trying to get a little bit more active on Twitter, REA Shinevine. Uh, and you know, you can reach out to me on any platform. I'm pretty responsive and I have my own podcast called yeah, Inside the say, Lions Den. Inside yeah. the Lions Den. Uh, I had a chance to listen to uh, one and part of another episode kind of prepping for this. Definitely I will be turning tuning into more. So uh, check that out as well. We'll link it in the show notes. But Arye, thanks a lot, man. Really appreciate all the insight and uh, and expertise. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You got it. Thanks. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining me today and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know when a new episode is released. You can also check me out on my website at www.path2.com.
frdm.com. And if you want more information about franchising or just want to say hello, feel free to contact me at Wes at Path, the number two frdm.com. Thanks again. Now go drop in.